Gresham College presents It's Done With Mirrors by Frank Close, OBE, Gresham Professor of Astronomy. Well, those of you who've been uh, at the talks I was giving last year, last century, in the last millennium, I guess, um, you heard me talking about matter and antimatter. You don't need to know that at all, other than to remember that at the beginning of time, matter and antimatter appeared, as it were, out of the Big Bang. And I just show this as an example of the most beautiful symmetry that we know, that the Big Bang created matter and antimatter in perfect balance. They are perfect images of each other. And yet today, the universe is made of matter alone. And this really puts the finger on the puzzle. How is it that the universe began so perfectly symmetric, and yet today is completely asymmetric? And this is one of the big questions that's facing my science now. And what I wanted to do was to take you in the next two to three talks through these sort of things and just to introduce you today to symmetry and some of the surprising things that are, as you'll find, much more familiar than you perhaps realise. So to start, I thought I'd just show you a couple of slides. Have we got to put that on? To show how symmetry really has impacted right through culture, um, this, very hard to see, but it doesn't matter, it'll be wallpaper that I can talk to. This is a, a silver tray that was made about six or seven hundred years ago, and it was made by an artist who was depicting the Last Supper. And the artist was only able to do side views. And it was culturally required that if you were doing anything at all to do with the Creator, with Christ and so forth, it had to be symmetric to represent the perfection. And the artist here has taken six of the disciples who are facing left and six of the disciples who are facing right, and then has the problem of only having one Christ, and so he's made two of him to maintain the symmetry. So this is an, one example of how symmetry has been through culture from time immemorial. Now, how does it come about that I'm talking about symmetry today and why is the series of talks called Lucifer's Legacy? So let's go to the next uh, slide and I'll give you a bit of the background on that. Have any of you here been to the Tuileries Gardens in Paris, uh, in front of the Louvre? If you've not, go there. I mean, it's beautiful. This is a picture of it as it was uh, a couple of hundred years ago. These gardens are almost pathologically symmetric. You go in the front gateway and everything that you see on the right of the main pathway is mirrored on the left. And, you know, every seat has got a seat on the other side, every bush and tree has got a bush and tree, every fountain has got a fountain, and so on and so forth. And I was in there at about five or six years ago, and I began to find it quite disturbing. And then, about ten metres down a little path at the side of me, I saw a statue of a devil, and some vandal had knocked the head off it. And this statue said Lucifer. And I thought, ah, I know that behind me, 10 metres in the other direction, by the symmetry of the thing, there'll be another statue of a devil, and I expect that the head of that would also have disappeared. I turned around. It was obviously not a mathematical vandal, because that one was OK. <laughs> so this piece of asymmetry in this park um, really surprised me. To go to the next slide to show you a rather boring uh, aerial view, you can see the, the symmetry of the thing. There's the, the Louvre down here, the Place de la Concorde. You should come in the end here and you know, walk through the centre pathway and you'll see this beautiful symmetry of the whole of the park with that one little piece of asymmetry. And I began to start thinking about it. And I thought, well, 
This is like a metaphor for the universe. You know, the beautiful symmetry of the Tweery Gardens is like the beautiful symmetry of matter and antimatter at the start of time. And the vandalised statue is like the universe as it is today. And uh, so I started thinking about that, and that is why the book, which Tim has very kindly mentioned, I'll show you here. <laughs> uh, I called it Lucifer's Legacy, because it was the legacy of me thinking about this vandalised statue of Lucifer, not necessarily implying that you know, the asymmetry of the universe had anything to do with Lucifer as such. But if that sells more copies, why not? Um, so uh, that was really how the generic title came about. And what I want to do is to tell you some things about symmetry and asymmetry, um, not least how we personally are perhaps existing because of it. And uh, to give you an idea that the lecture is actually going to be hopefully more amusing than amazing. Um, <laughs> this is already an interesting thing. I find that you know, a sophisticated audience like this appreciates this. I showed this to school kids and there was absolute silence. <laughs> And it actually is very profound. I mean, it's one of these things like trying to eat porridge with your fingers. The more you think about this, the, the deeper and deeper it gets. And I want actually to get to that. And really, it's just to pose the question to start with, when are things symmetric and when aren't they? And so that's really what I wanted to uh, begin with. So let's uh, look at this. Today is beautiful. You can go outside and look at the sun. Well, very quickly, otherwise your eyes will get burned. So, but you'll see this beautiful circle in the sky. And if you look at it in six months' time, you'll still see a circle in the sky, which is quite surprising, because the Earth will have travelled, you know, halfway around it. And the reason it's a circle is because it's a perfect sphere. In fact, it's the most perfect sphere you can imagine. So here is an illustration of the sun, a perfect sphere. If you look at the Earth from uh, far, far away, you also see, this is not to scale, uh, you also see a perfect sphere, apart from rather large polar bears and penguins and things on it. Um, and you immediately notice something here. Isn't that surprising? I mean, the Earth is a sphere, uh, apart from sort of irregular surface features. The Sun is a sphere. Individual stars are spheres. And you begin to think that spheres perhaps have something to do with life, the universe and everything. But not everything is spheres. I mean, here is something that isn't a sphere. So we are not spheres. Yet, the sun, the stars, pretty well are spheres. Now, why is it? What's the difference between us and the sun? Well, the basic answer is gravity. But to form a star, pretty well all that you need is gravity. Gravity attracting things, pieces of matter, to each other from all directions the same. The basic law of gravity says that the force between two things depends on how much mass there is in them and how far apart they are, but it doesn't care what their relative orientation in space is. So gravity pulls from all, sort of sucks in from all directions the same, and so you get this beautiful spherical symmetry. That is why the sun is essentially a sphere. And that is why the, the Earth is nearly a sphere. I say the word nearly, I'll come in a minute to say why, why nearly. Uh, well, I'll say it now. Because the Earth uh, exists, indeed, it was formed through gravity, but gravity isn't the whole story. If I drop something to the floor, like me, I stop. I don't sink to the centre of the Earth because the floor stops me. And the reason the floor stops me is because there's other forces at work 
There's the electromagnetic forces that grip the atoms and molecules together to make solid things, like the floor, like the Earth as a whole, like you and me for that matter. And the electric and magnetic forces, that's much more subtle. We are made of carbon, and this is a, a highly engineered model that is already falling apart. Of uh, This orange represents a carbon atom. Carbon, if you like, has four arms that it likes to use to attach to other atoms. So, for example, uh, if each of these little chocolate pieces that have been nicely designed to look like euros as part of the government's currently sponsoring this lecture. Uh, <laughs> so this is a molecule of CH4. Um, it makes a sort of trapezium shape. And uh, so that is not spherically symmetric. And other molecules have different shapes. And so things that are built by atoms and molecules building up have their own interesting symmetries. I mean, this it's got a symmetry, you can sort of see that I can twist it around. It looks the same from certain directions. If I rotate it through that amount or that amount, it looks the same. But it's not spherically symmetric. And so the moment electricity and magnetism gets involved, you get structures that appear. And we are essentially held together by electricity and magnetism. Fine. So let's uh, go back to the, uh, the question of the Sun and the Earth. Here is something that is relevant today that you couldn't imagine timing this lecture better. You heard that NASA managed to land a probe on an asteroid for the first time last night. And the shape of the asteroid is something like that. It's definitely not a sphere. Yet that asteroid was ultimately formed by gravity the same way that the Earth was formed by, by gravity and the Sun was formed by gravity. Why is it not a sphere? Here's the Earth again. Why isn't there a huge mountain sticking up on the side so that the Earth isn't a sphere? Well, it turns out that the biggest mountain that you could have would be about 10 miles high. If you get a mountain higher than that on the Earth, the gravity pulling the mountain into the Earth, if you like, is such that its, its weight is so much that the base of the mountain will begin to melt. Right? The, the atoms, the, the electric and magnetic forces that at the moment here are nicely holding these atoms in place, that the weight of the mountain on them will be so much that the atom itself will begin to be destroyed. The whole thing will melt away. And so the mountain will sink into the earth until the, the balance is reachieved. So you can't sustain mountains bigger than that on the Earth. The reason is that gravity attracts everything to each other. And the more you've got, the more gravitational tug you've got. So on the big Earth, you can only have a 10-mile uh, bit extra. Beyond that, it can't survive. You end up with this beautiful sphere. Whereas if you have a very small asteroid, the amount of gravity that it has got inside it is very, very small. The amount of gravity that we've got inside us is essentially nothing. It's the electric and magnetic forces that give us our, our shape. If we were very, 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 very big, like the Earth, gravity would rule and we would end up as spheres. It's interesting that at the moment of conception, the embryo is a sphere. But nine and a half months later, it comes up with head and arms and legs. And this is really what I want to get to. Gravity naturally makes spheres. 
If you've got very big things like stars, they're spherical. You might then expect that everything involving gravity is spherical, and you then go and look through a telescope and kind of look at the next picture. And you'll see a galaxy. And here's a picture of a galaxy. And at this point, you think, now, this is bizarre, because that galaxy has been formed by gravity. And gravity likes to make things in spheres, like the sun. And you'd think that all of those stars would attract to each other and end up making a beautifully spherical galaxy. And yet, that clearly isn't. So what has happened? How is it that the basic law of gravity wants to make spheres, and yet it ends up making things that are not spherical. Though, in this case, you can see there is a beautiful symmetry in here, that there's a sort of mirror symmetry, that the stars down here, which maybe are hundreds of thousands of light years away, and the stars over here, somehow sort of seem to know that the other ones are there. You know, this lot over here, beautifully mirrored, like that lot over there. So how is it that you can have the basic law of gravity wanting to make things spherical, and yet, at the scale of a whole galaxy, the symmetry that comes out can be quite different. And that's really what I wanted to uh, get into today and start by talking about symmetries that fool us. So let's take it from here. Why do mirrors reverse left and right and not up and down? How many people believe that mirrors do reverse left and right? How many people believe that they don't reverse left and right? How many people don't believe anything? <laughs> right. Okay, fine. Good. Suppose, well, the answer is they don't reverse left and right, they don't reverse up and down, they reverse front and back. And the reason we think they reverse left and right is because we think that we are symmetric left and right. To give you an example, suppose it was the case that everybody, when they popped out on their first birthday, popped out of the womb like this, that everybody was a harlequin and all of us exist with this funny little coat with blue on the left-hand side and red on the right-hand side. And that is what everybody looks like. I mean, imagine this audience like that. And there's nobody on the world other than that. And then you go and look at yourself in a mirror. And what you would see in the mirror would be somebody who doesn't exist. So you would immediately be able to tell the real you from the mirror person. And the idea that somehow the mirror had reversed left and right, we wouldn't get hung up with this fact. It's because we think that we are perfectly symmetric that we tend to think that mirrors reverse left and right. But in fact, we're not totally symmetric. And here is a picture of me, which doesn't quite look like me, not just because I haven't got the glasses on. And here's another picture of me. Yet those two pictures aren't the same. Um, and what these pictures are, you've probably guessed already, that you take a full-face photograph of yourself, you know, like you have in the passport. If you look like your passport photograph, you need the holiday. And then you get uh, the computer to split it in the middle and take the left-hand side and reflect it to make one image, and the right-hand side reflect it to make one image. You've got two perfectly symmetric faces, neither of which look like each other, neither of which look like me. I should say, don't do this. <laughs> um, I'm unable to look myself literally in the face anymore. Um, the point is, none of us are symmetric. We are all very 
asymmetric. I don't just mean superficially on which side you part your hair. I do have visions of giving this talk in a few years' time and be able to say which side do I part my hair. Uh, but uh, we're asymmetric, if you like, all the way down. And, uh, for example, how many people in this room are left-handed? Come on, you're not all being honest. How many people in this room are left-handed? That's a few more hands this time. About 10% of people are left-handed. And as always, half of them put their hands up at this point, put their right hands up. That's another interesting thing. So, <laughs> so uh, that's a, a superficial example of asymmetry. There's, uh, ten, th there's nine right-handers for every left-hander. Why? Why not? Um, how many people have got their internal organs mirror-reversed? <laughs> I mean, there's a fair chance you wouldn't know. Uh, and... Uh, at this point, often people... It turns out that about 1 in 10,000 people have got their internal organs mirror-reversed. And uh, so I am told, I'm not an expert in this, but people afterwards can probably put me right in this, that I understand that embryologists understand how it is that you start off with this perfectly sort of spherical uh, egg on day one, and nine months later, it's got a head, arms and legs and so forth. How up and down is differentiated is understood, how front and back is differentiated is understood, but how left and right get differentiated there is still some uncertainty about it. It seems that something switches it on so that the heart goes one way, the liver and so forth go the other way. If, however, it switches it on wrong, then everything goes the opposite way. And at this point, people often ask, do these 1 in 10,000 people tend to have a lower life expectancy than the rest of us? To which I say, why do you say the rest of us? I mean, how, do you, <laughs> how do you know whether you are one of us or them, so to speak? Um, and the answer is uh, they have about a one standard deviation lower life expectancy and it's very strongly correlated with accidents in surgery. <laughs> <laughs> and as I say, that is not... So uh, that's an example. Um, by the time you get down to the level of uh, uh, DNA and amino acids, then there's a real mirror asymmetry and that's what I wanted to show with this highly advanced model here. Um, this is what... The basic, uh, what carbon, if you like, likes to do. It likes to have four arms coming out. Now, the model I had before was where each of these things represented a hydrogen atom. So let's leave that one as a hydrogen atom. But suppose, um, instead of the next arm being attached to a hydrogen, it was attached to, a, say, a hydroxyl group represented by a banana. And uh, why not? <laughs> and another leg, perhaps, to... Uh, COOH, represented by a, a grape, and then something, and the last one to a NH2 or something like that, represented by this slice of cucumber. And I think what I have now is a perfect representation of an amino acid, and we are made of amino acids. Um, now, the point of this, just showing off by catching, the point of this is this, that suppose we look at that uh, molecule, that amino acid there, Suppose that this grape and that banana had been the other way around. I mean, you've still got the same set of stuff, the same atoms and molecules and so on and so forth, but it is different in a mirror sense, that what I had a moment ago was the mirror image of what I now have. And so you have what they call the left-handed and the right-handed versions of, of organic molecules. And it turns out that uh, the amino acids that 
we are made of and so forth tend to be one of the, let's call it the left-handed form, whereas the right-handed form is not used in living things. So we are, at the molecular level, already mirror asymmetric. Why it is that we're made of it that way, not the other way, is a, an open question. Uh, it's a question which you may have answers to, and if so, I'd like to, to hear about it. But so, so we are sort of asymmetric all the way down, if you like. Now, what I'd like to do as well is to give you some other examples of, of subtle symmetries and asymmetries. I mean, Escher makes these beautiful pictures that illustrate many things, and I will use this in a different context next time. So this is a precursor or something. I mean, this is a beautiful example of a... You can see there's a sort of nice pattern buried in there that uh, you've got white horsemen going to the left and black horsemen going to the right. But this clearly is a picture that is not mirror-symmetric, because if I looked in the mirror, what I would see is white horsemen going to the right and black horsemen going to the left. So it's different from its mirror image, but you can perhaps guess, or this is an exercise for the audience for next time. What would I have to do to this picture so that when I looked at it in the mirror, it would still look the same as it does now? And you can think about that for the next uh, four weeks. And there's also a nice picture here, another Escher picture of geese, where you've got white geese flowing to the left and black geese flowing to the right. And if you look at that in a mirror, you will now see them the other way around. So this again is an Escher print that is not mirror symmetric. And again, I will pose as a question for next time, what would you have to do to this picture so that when you looked in the mirror, it would seem the same as you started with? And you can answer that in four weeks' time, or you can buy the book and find the answer in the meantime. And you can also ask yourself, what's that got to do with the price of fish? And you also find that another time. So what I wanted to do, having sort of shown you those little examples of how there is asymmetry deep down at the level of the molecules that build us up, to look at the question of where do symmetries come from and where they disappear? Can it be that the universe which began totally symmetrically, perfectly balanced, has in some natural way ended up in this lopsided fashion, whereby life uses one set of molecules, but the mirror images are not used at all. Mm -hmm. So, to give you some thoughts about symmetry and how it changes, um, maybe you've seen this thing about Buridin's ass. This was, Buridin was a philosopher in the 14th century who like philosophers, worried about things such as this. Suppose you have got a perfectly symmetric ass, which is positioned perfectly symmetrically between two identical bunches of carrots. And by the symmetry of the situation, this ass can't possibly choose to go to that side any more than that side. Therefore, it will starve to death. Now, clearly this doesn't happen. But you ask yourself, why doesn't it happen? I mean, if you're a philosopher, this is a very profound question. Um, if you're a scientist who knows already about asymmetries, you'll say, well, maybe the ass has probably got the slightly stronger right eye than the left eye, and so it will look that side rather than this side. There will be some trifling little thing that will make the ass choose one rather than the other, and the symmetry will sort of spontaneously get broken, and it will then choose one bunch of carrots and will survive. Well, a slightly less uh, facetious example which gets nearer to the sort of message, is this one. Suppose you go to one of these very exotic dinner parties 
where the table has been laid out perfectly so that the eye in the sky is looking at this beautifully circular table. There are diners all the way around. Exactly midway between you and your partner is a table napkin. And then you have the embarrassment of, is the table napkin that belongs to you the one on your right or the one on the left? And being perfectly symmetrically placed, it is not possible to tell, and therefore the meal can't start, and the diners <laughs> all uh, starve to death. Now, of course, what happens is that some aggressive person on the other side of the, the table grabs the napkin on their left, which causes all of these things to uh, move around in a circle this way, and the meal actually gets started. Of course, what can happen is that uh, if it's a really huge table with maybe 200 people all around it, you could imagine that somebody on this side of the table picks up the napkin on their left, forcing all of you to be like left napkin grabbers. But over here, completely independently, somebody grabbed the napkin on their right, causing all of you to be right napkin grabbers. And somewhere about there, you have a problem, sir. <laughs> but on the other hand, on the other side of the table, somebody's got two to choose from. And this rather sort of silly example is at work in the way that magnets work. That if you've got a sort of a hot lump of metal where the individual atoms are like individual little magnets just wobbling around violently because it's so hot, as the metal cools down, say two of the magnets manage to sort of grip each other and line up like this, making the north poles point this away. And that sort of forces all the other magnets in that region to all sort of line up the same way. But over here, Maybe they would, two magnets grab themselves like this, causing the magnets over here to line up that away. So you'll get a, a region of magnetism in one part of the metal like this, and a different magnetism in another part of the metal like that. Just like the different napkins, left grabbers or right grabbers. To give you an example um, of how things that appear to be perfectly symmetric actually lose symmetry in nature, let's look at that. This could be a perfectly circular bowl of water and the black dot is you looking above at a, a stone or something that is dropping perfectly into the centre of this circle. And by the circular symmetry of the whole thing, the water will splash and uh, you'd expect then that there will be a perfectly circular distribution of water on the outside. And all we have to do is to find the way to make this thing... Do I have to do something else to this? I can keep talking, it's all right. But if the light doesn't come on, it doesn't go onto the screen. I've got a beautiful picture here which I can pass around, except this is a very expensive computer, so I can't. This is the answer, but the picture will show it much nicer. Yes. But the inside is not on. It's coming. Okay. So, I mean, what actually happens, you, you, you've sort of seen this yourself, but probably not in these beautifully made pictures which say multimedia. Ah, it's coming up. Right. Okay. It's coming. Lovely. So, I mean, what Duncan tells me that he did years ago was take a high-speed film of people dropping things into glasses of water, and then you freeze-frame the thing when it hits. So... Uh, what you have is you've got the, the thing for, that is dropping into the middle. I mean, one has just dropped in there. And you've got the perfectly, before you started, you've got this perfectly circularly symmetric situation. But the moment that the thing hits in the middle and makes the splash, 
the splash isn't perfectly strictly symmetric. I mean, you get little crown that forms. And the question is, you know, why did it choose to go like that as against just there, or just there, or just there? There's clearly a symmetry at the end. In this case, there's a symmetry like the clock face, you know, one, two, three, four, five, and so so forth. But it's not the perfectly circular symmetry that you started with. So here you see a, a living example of what we call spontaneous breaking of symmetry. That the starting situation was perfectly circular, the stone having been very carefully positioned at the centre of that circle so that no direction should be preferred over any other. What happens with the splash, which it rises up circularly to about here, but then you get these individual spikes that appear. So the symmetry is somehow broken. Of course, the question is why? What's special about this? Well, the answer is nothing particularly special about that. Um, leaving that on there for a moment, another very familiar example is the formation of snowflakes. That when you've got water that is above the melting point, the individual molecules are moving around in all directions, completely spherically symmetric. As you cool the water down to freezing point, the molecules move slower and slower, and then they sort of lock in, and you get the beautiful structure of the snowflake. So instead of all directions being equally likely, you get this sort of dendril going out here and one going out here and so forth. And it's very much analogous to this, that why did I orient the snowflake that way? I mean, it could have been that way or that way. What happens is that one of these little legs starts forming and it forces the other one to follow suit. It's just like that example with the dinner party. One person chose the napkin on their left and it forced all the other people to follow suit. I mean, they could have chosen it on the right and forced everybody to follow suit. So it's sort of random. So here, the moment that the first dendrite forms, say, that way, will force the other ones to follow at those particular points. And similarly here, what is happening is the water and the splash is rising up. And, of course, gravity is trying to pull it back again. And so it now needs to sort of fall back to the ground. But it can't, because like, there's not enough water to do it. So the, the water molecules have got to sort of part at some point. Now, why should they part at this point rather than the other point? Completely random. Somebody chooses the left dinner napkin. It's just like two, the water here is probably a little bit thinner, and they split apart, and that then forces the other splits to take place of the way you come around. Now, what you want to know is, when does this sort of thing happen, and when doesn't it? And this is what I've got this little demo model here to show you. This uh, is a set of magnets. Now, if I had an individual magnet, I could point it in any direction that I like, completely uh, circularly symmetric on the surface there. I'm assuming that the magnetic field of the Earth is so weak that I don't feel it. I can point it any direction I like. If these magnets are rotating at high energy, they can point any direction they like. So let's make them do that. So, as they're whirling around, they're sort of showing perfect circular symmetry. But see what happens when they slow down. The question is, how will they end up? And see if you can guess how they're going to end up. How many think that the central one will point horizontally? Vote now. 
How many think it'll vote, vote well, it's too late to vote now, right? Well, maybe it isn't, you know? You still can't tell. So it's settled down. So what we have got is that the central one is pointing vertically, and the ones to the side are pointing horizontally. And uh, so it's got a nice pattern there. It's certainly a different one than we started with. I mean, not all directions now are at work. Two special directions have frozen out, if you like, and it happens to be like this. Now, there is another way this could have ended up. Instead of that one being vertical, I could turn it sideways. And it could have been like that. Well, because then it quickly was rotating it, right? <laughs> but the, the general message here is that what's been going on is that we started with something that's sort of high energy, or hot, if you, you like, where all the magnets were whirling around violently, and they didn't care which way they pointed. And then as the, as the thing cooled down, as the magnets began to sort of feel each other, and the energy was transferred from their motion into the magnetic forces linking them, they then sort of froze into place. And they could have frozen this way, like sideways up sideways, or that way, up sideways up. Which one they ended up in is completely random and unpredictable. And that's why I said how many people believed it would fall in one figuration, and about five people in the room, probably out of the ten who were still awake, so that does at least make it 50%, <laughs> five people in the room were prepared to put their hands up. I therefore from that confer that when I asked how many people in this room were left-handed and four people put their hands up, the real answer was about 20, which does fit with the statistics. But the thing is, it could have ended up either of those, you don't know which it will be uh, until afterwards. And this is an example of spontaneous symmetry breaking, that at high energies, the magnets can point in any direction. As the thing freezes, they end up in one or other. If that's for me, tell them I'll be finished in about 10 minutes. <laughs> that they could fill, finish up in either of two configurations, and you don't know which. Now, one of the ideas is that perhaps that is what happened at the start of the universe, that when the universe is very hot, matter and antimatter were equal, the universe then somehow froze and it ended up with matter. It could have ended up with antimatter, but why it chose one and not the other is sort of chance. Well, this does beg the question of why do things do this, or when do they do them? Why is it that magnets behave like this, whereas nice spherically symmetric oranges stay spherically symmetric oranges until you start eating them. I mean, this is quite happy to stay as it is, whereas magnets apparently aren't. What's special? What's different? What's the key feature? Well, the key feature is this. Just think about two magnets. Um, if the, the red is the North Pole and the blue is the South Pole. And imagine if you've got them with the two North Poles pointing at each other. Now, that is a perfectly symmetric situation. It's the two things lined up beautifully, and they could stay there. But you know what, of course, happens. They don't stay there. They go like that, or maybe like that. You don't know which way it's going to go. But what's happening is that the slightest deviation from exact lining up will cause them to flip. So this is indeed 
a nice symmetric configuration, but it's not the most stable one. The slightest disturbance will tip you into the most stable one. That was what we were doing with these magnets. When they were whirling around, that was the nice symmetric situation, but it wasn't the most stable one. The most stable one is when they were lined up that they ended up either one way or the other, but you couldn't tell which. So the general feature is if you've got anything that is in a metastable state, it will drop to the most stable one and change the structure as it does so. So that picture of that galaxy that we started with, it turns out that indeed that the gravity that was attracting all those stars to each other is spherically symmetric. It wants to make a spherically symmetric uh, galaxy. But of course, the stars in that galaxy aren't all very precisely positioned just the right amount of distance apart each time. Two of them will be slightly nearer than other ones. And they will sort of attract each other and pass each other. And they won't hit each other head on. They'll probably pass this way and start orbiting around each other. Or maybe that way and start orbiting around each other. And the result of this, you'll start getting a rotation because of a very small offset at the beginning, say, thousands of eons ago, which over the years and millennia will start building up this different structure as the galaxy settles down into its most uh, favorite situation. So the bottom line is this, that if you have a situation which is symmetric, but not the most stable possible, so it's sort of unstable, like this little stick trying to stand on its end is an example of something which in principle is stable, it is uh, symmetric, but the slightest offset it will fall to the ground and break the symmetry and go into the more stable state. So for the aficionados, let me just briefly say to whet your appetite for some later things, what's this got to do with the universe? Well, can I have the next slide and hide this? The slide after this. This is Peter Higgs, who has applied these ideas to the universe at large, and in next season I'll tell you about that, but very briefly for those who are here who want to, to know something in the last three minutes about, about this, roughly is like this. But the universe today is very, very cold out there. Um, there's a sort of galaxy out in space, three degrees of absolute zero, minus 200 degrees centigrade or so. And snowflakes will exist at such temperatures. So imagine that beautiful structure of the snowflake. And we're going to see what happens as you heat it up. Well, as you heat it up, it melts because you get to the temperature where the Earth is. It melts. And, uh, however, this is what we, we have. So we start off in the real cold where we've got this nice snowflake. And we see the pattern of the snowflake. We heat it up until it reaches its melting point. The snowflake melts, the pattern is lost. But there is another pattern that emerges. The individual atoms, the hydrogen and oxygen, and all the rest of the, the carbon and everything else like that, they form a pattern. It's called the Mendeleev periodic table, which you may have seen in the textbooks. And this is the pattern that atoms naturally make. And indeed, carbon's four arms which give the shape to 
organic molecules and the like are because it sits at a particular point in this pattern. Keep heating away until you get to temperatures of several thousand degrees. At this point, atoms can no longer exist because they have got an internal structure which gets disrupted when you get to temperatures like that. And so the Mendeleev pattern disappears. At temperatures of the sun, atoms that exist, the individual electrons and protons are all whirling around independently. The protons are examples of the hydrogen nucleus. The nuclei of the atoms, however, manage to survive. And you get another pattern, which is of the nuclear isotopes. Go to temperatures in excess of that, you get to the pattern of what we call the standard model of particles, the electrons and quarks, about which I shall tell you in the next lecture but one. And if we are right, well, this is what we think happens next. At CERN, we were able to do experiments that got to temperatures of about here, a machine called LEP, which just closed at the end of November. During the next five years, they're building a much bigger machine called the Large Hadron Collider. It's got to be called something, I can tell you why on another occasion, but that will be able to get us to a temperature like that. And if Mr. Higgs is right, between here and here is a temperature where, in a sense, the universe melts. Don't panic. Um, what we really mean is that the pattern that we've discerned among the basic particles will melt away. And we will see, we believe, the sort of basic symmetry that existed when the universe was indeed that hot, namely within a billionth of a second after the original Big Bang. So what we believe is the case, it's experiments that will tell us if it's true, is that the universe began in a state of perfect symmetry when it was very, very hot. And as it cooled down, it froze at various stages. It froze at this point and gave the identity to the basic particles that make up atoms. These in turn at lower temperature freeze into atomic nuclei, eventually freeze to make atoms, and eventually freeze to make snowflakes. At each stage, a new pattern appears. That, at least, is the idea. And if the idea is right, we at last may begin to have the answer to how it is that we exist. And it's quite an irony, because it seems that asymmetry is critical to existence, and exactly how and why is getting much more profound. I said at one point of the lecture that it's the asymmetry in amino acids and the, and the like, and I've lost the critical cucumber. Here we are. So it's the fact that amino acids that make us do not have mirror symmetry that distinguishes mirror versions of each other, that somehow this is relevant to, to life and living things. At one level, it's perhaps not a surprise. I mean, amino acids eventually build up DNA, and to procreate, you have to match DNA with a partner. Now, if DNA could spiral this way or that way, you've immediately reduced the chances of having a successful coupling. And so, the sort of Darwinian selection might be a reason for preferring asymmetry to be absolute in living things. We simply don't know. But it is quite an irony that the way that I started the book was in the Tuileries Gardens in Paris, and it turned out that I've inadvertently discovered the punchline also there, which I shall reveal in a second. So let's remind you where we've come. I started off in the Tuileries Gardens. I saw this vandalized statue. It made me start thinking about asymmetry. I went chasing asymmetry from living things right the way down back to the start of the universe. I finished writing the book, 
I go back to the Tweary Gardens thinking of a way to finally end it. I don't mean to top myself, I mean metaphorically to end the book. And uh, of course the statue has been repaired. I'm in this perfectly symmetric garden and I think, what would happen if I had been here today? Would I have had the idea? So can I have the last slide? One more. Right, so here we are in the Tweary Gardens um, this year. Perfectly symmetric again. And I leave the gardens, I cross the river. And I find myself walking through the left bank of Paris. And as you do so, you come past the laboratories where B.O. Um, 200 years ago discovered polarized light. Interesting example of asymmetry. And you go past the laboratory where Henri Becquerel discovered radioactivity, which, as we will see in the next talk, is an example of mirror asymmetry. I thought, I'm onto something here. And I then come to the Institut Pasteur. And it was Pasteur who was the first person who realized or discovered the difference between left-handed and right-handed molecules, that living things seem to make use of one and not the other, which is sort of an ironical example that, indeed, the whole story of asymmetry actually began in the Pasteur Institute. But in the Pasteur Institute, there is a beautiful statement from him. It's this. I can even imagine that all living creatures are in their existence and structure a function of cosmic asymmetry. And I suddenly thought, that's how I end the story. It all links together. And if the experiments we're going to do at CERN in five years' time turn out to give us what we think, it may be that Pasteur was right. But that's a story for another time. We've now got 50 minutes for you to ask me the things you really wanted to know. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.